0: Welcome to CM Life Crime Time, CM Life's newest true crime podcast. I'm your host, Abby Zimmerman, and I'm super excited to dive into all things true crime with you guys. Before we examine our first case, I need to mention that listener discretion is advised for this podcast due to topics of necrophilia, sexual assault, child abuse, and strangulation. With that being said, let's get into it. This case that we're about to examine is a pretty weird case, and weird doesn't even define how disgusting and cynical this case is. I mean, this case is about 10 years old, and I can imagine when the details of this story became known to the world that this was a pretty big deal for the Mount Pleasant community. I mean, when I was doing research, my jaw kept dropping to the floor of how crazy this case is and how much our justice system had failed the families of these victims. I mean, some of these events that led up to the final case could have been prohibited. Now, I know that's hard to say because you never know how a human is gonna act. But if our suspect was just kept in prison, some of these events would have never had happened and two mothers wouldn't have lost their daughters. That's just my little hot take on this case. But with that being said, let's get into the basics of our case. It's October 31st, 2012. 24-year-old Rebecca Gray is looking forward to spending Halloween night taking her three-year-old son out trick-or-treating with her boyfriend, Aaron Quinn. But when Rebecca doesn't show up to work and her car is found in a local bar parking lot, people close to her become worried and notified the police. The Mount Pleasant police file a missing persons case and decide to search her residence. When the police get a missing file case, the first thing that they want to determine is if the person left on their own accord or if there was foul play. So when they get to her trailer, they notice that her front door is unlocked. They look inside and see that her, that her purse is on the counter and further investigation shows that there had been a struggle of some kind and that part of the carpet had been recently deep cleaned. They determine that not only do they have a missing person, but they also have a crime scene. In most cases, when a crime happens against women, the first person that police look at is the significant other. So the police talk to Rebecca's current boyfriend, Aaron, and the father of her child, but both are cleared as suspects pretty early in the case. This leads them to their next suspect, John Douglas White. When I was doing my research into John White, I was surprised about how preventable a lot of his crimes could have been. If people close to him and the police would have seen the warning signs, a lot of lives could have been saved. For starters, John was abused as a kid. His sister Christina appeared on a show called Evil Lives Here, where she recounted her life with her brother. According to Christina, she and John had a pretty normal childhood, but there were times that John did show his violent side. John had a tendency to lie a lot, which resulted in his father whipping him. Childhood abuse is one of the early warning signs for a killer, according to the National Museum of Crime and Punishment at Bowie State University. Christina recalls one of the first times she saw her evil side to her brother. One night after her parents went to bed, she threw a stuffed animal into John's room. Her and John would often throw things at each other at night after their parents went to bed, so this was nothing new. It was just a cute little game that they played. But that night, Christina remembers John not throwing the stuffed animal back. Now, you're probably wondering why this is such a big deal for John not to throw a stuffed animal back at his sister. He probably just didn't want to play with his sister. But it's what John said to his sister that would be the reason that this moment has stuck in Christina's head. She threw a few more stuffed animals at John's door before he picked up the stuffed animals, walked into her room, and muttered the words... If you throw anything else, I'm going to kill you. The phrase, I'm going to kill you, is not an uncommon phrase that siblings tell each other. I know that I've probably told that to my brother before, but I don't actually mean it. It's an emotional hyperbole that people tend to say in the heat of the moment. But it's the way that John looked and said the phrase that shocked Christina. It wasn't even like John was present when he said it after this incident christina never threw anything else into her brother's room so this incident had to shock her if she never threw anything else into the room another warning sign is torturing small animals christina recalls an incident involving a neighbor's dog she was on her paper route when this dog came running at her and attacked her she went home and told her parents what had happened but doesn't remember john being in the room when she told them The next day at school, she heard from her classmates that the dog had been found shot dead in the woods. At the time, she didn't think her brother had anything to do with the dog's death, But she would be proven wrong when John would confess when he was in prison for the first time. His confession was in a book that he was writing about his life. He wrote that he shot the dog and didn't feel bad about it. After high school, John went into the Navy and spent two years overseas in Japan. And it was clear to his sister that his time in Japan brought out the evil side to him. She remembers him telling her the story about how he went to a bar and met this girl there. The two of them returned to the hotel to have sex. When the two of them returned to the hotel to have sex, the girl revealed that she was actually a guy. And John's reaction to finding out this information was to beat the guy. Christina said that John told the story in a jokey manner and had no remorse to beating this guy up. There were clearly warning signs that John had a violent side, but most people don't consider family members murderers unless they have actual probable cause, and Christina didn't have any probable cause. She just thought that their brother had PTSD from being in the military and being overseas in Japan. She thought that was the reason that her brother became violent, but she'd be proven wrong. So this is, that is John's, like, childhood growing up. Um, that was all, that stuff seems pretty amateur in the world of serial killing. Out of, I mean, I've watched a lot of documentaries about serial killing and stuff like that. And that's just, like, basic stuff. But the stuff we're about to get into is the what really, really solidifies John's reputation. So, in 19... Eighty-one, at the age of twenty-four, John is living in Battle Creek, Michigan, with his wife. He has a seventeen-year-old neighbor named Teresa, and the two of them seem to get along. One day, the two of them were supposedly smoking pot in his basement when John started to attack her. According to his side of the story, Teresa came at him with a knife first, and he acted in self-defense. Now, John does have cut marks on his hands. That would, at first glance, seem like John acted in self-defense. But the more police look into the events of the altercation, John's story just doesn't seem plausible, and no one really believes him. Not even his sister believes John's version of the story. So the actual story is that John stabs Teresa 15 times and then tries to suffocate her. Miraculously... Teresa survives the attack and John was arrested and put on trial. But what the court allows John to do, in my opinion, was a huge kick in the face for Teresa and her family. John was allowed to plead no contest to assault with the intent to do bodily harm. According to Cornell Law School, the definition of pleading no contest means a plead by a criminal defendant that they will not contest a charge. A no contest plea does not expressly admit guilt, but nevertheless waives the right to a trial and authorizes the court to treat the criminal, criminal defense as if they were guilty for purpose, uh, purposes of sentencing. However, a no contest plea does not act as an admission of guilt for any purpose beyond the case in which it pleads. So that's a lot of law term words. I don't fully understand reading that. It pleading no contest basically me, is is basically a way to keep your innocence and serve a lighter sentence than if you were found guilty in a trial. So, there's that. Okay. So, back to our story. He is sentenced to 5 years in prison, but only serves 2 out of the five years after he appeals and wins. He wins his appeal by claiming that his attorney did not raise the insane defense. And he's given two years of probation and is required to get mental health treatment. 13 years later, John would become the primary suspect in another case. It's now the summer of 94 and John lives in Comstock Township, Michigan. But things with his wife are not going well. He's having an affair with a 26-year-old named Vicki Sue Wall. The two meet while John was doing a maintenance job at a textile company. It is not known how long that John and Vicki were in a relationship, but things, but things seem to not be going well, and on July 11, 1994, Vicki is seen alive for the last time. Surveillance video from the parking lot of a grocery store captures Vicky getting into a black truck with a bearded man at 3 in the morning. Vicki's relatives report her missing and John is one of the first people brought into police questioning. During questioning, he admits to having an affair with Vicky, but claims that he dropped her off alive. The police don't believe him, but they have no evidence to charge him and are forced to release him. Shortly after the interview with the police, John checks himself into a psychiatric hospital. It would be six weeks before Vicky's body is found only two miles from where she was last seen alive. Her body is so badly decomposed that the police are not able to de- determine a cause of death. Police once again decide to talk to John. But this time, John refuses to talk with police and refuses to take a lie detector test. Having video proof of being the last person seen with Vicki, a search warrant allows police to take John's truck into evidence and perform a lithol test, which showed evidence of blood. But the evidence was severely limited. Because of the lack of evidence, John is once again allowed to plead no contest, this time for involuntary, involuntary manslaughter john is sentenced 8 to 15 years in prison it's important to note that while in prison john admits to the prison psychiatrist that is he's having fantasies about having intercourse with with the bodies of dead women despite having this gruesome confession written in record john only serves 12 out of the 15 years of his sentence and is released in 2007 at this point in his life john is a free man His wife has divorced and left him, so he decides to move north to Mount Pleasant. He has supposedly found religion and becomes a pastor at Christ Community Fellowship Church, a church that at the time had a congregation of only 14 people. It's reported that members of the congregation were aware of John's past crimes when he was hired to be the pastor of the church. And this is where John's past life and current life collide. John is engaged to Sally Gay. If the last name Gay is ringing any bell to you, that's because Sally Gay is the mother of Rebecca Gay, our missing victim. So White is assumed to be stepfather to Rebecca. And obviously the two of them have a good relationship because she trusts John to drop off her son to his father's on Wednesdays. Keep in mind that the two of them live in the same trailer park. Because John is assumed to be stepfather of Rebecca and they live in the same trailer park, investigators sit down with John and ask him when the last time was that he saw Rebecca. He says that he went to her trailer at 6.30 that morning to watch her son. He said that Rebecca was in her bathroom and told him that he could rest on the couch until her son woke up. Apparently, John falls asleep on the couch and doesn't see or hear Rebecca leave. John then drops the son off at the father's house around 8 a.m. So the story kind of makes sense to investigators. But they notice something. They notice that John has a cut on his nose. The investigators ask about this. John tells the investigators that he had a shell fall on him in his trailer. And to prove this, he shows the investigators where it happened and how it happened. And at this point in time, investigators believe him they they believe him for the time being until they take a look in, into his background and this is when the case starts taking a turn they ask white to take a polygraph and he agrees only because of sally it's not clear if sally knows anything about john's criminal past or at this point in time thinks john has anything to do with her daughter disappearance she's probably just trying to be a good mom and get all of the information she can so she can find her missing daughter As the event of Halloween plays out, the police find some blood and a broken necklace in the back of John's truck. This gives police enough cause to obtain a search warrant on his house and truck. Things are not looking good for John, and they get worse when detectives find a bag with a rubber mallet, zip ties, garbage bags, and a pair of women's underwear. Which, this is a goldmine of evidence for police. This evidence that they found starts to paint a picture about what could have happened with Rebecca. Now remember, they think that this is not only, a, this is not just a missing persons case. There was a crime that to it that goes with it. Now whether that's homicide, whether that, that was foul play, uh, sexual assault, anything like that, they don't know. They're just finding the evidence. So while this evidence is being found, John is flunking his polygraph. And it's obvious to everyone in the station that he is lying. Investigators show him the pictures of the broken necklace and blood in his truck. And John continues to claim his innocence and says that he knows nothing about any of the evidence that is found. Investigators do not believe John whatsoever, so they keep pushing. So in the early morning of November 1st, John finally agrees to talk about Rebecca in exchange for a life sentence and to be segregated from other prisoners. Since John is ready to talk, he tells investigators what had happened. He tells them that on the night of the 30th, he drank several beers and watched porn websites where people committed sexual acts on dead bodies. Having sex with dead bodies is called necrophilia, And John says that necrophilia intrigues him, and he often had fantasies about sex with Rebecca's dead body. Now, having the courage to make his fantasy a reality, he heads over to Rebecca's trailer and lets himself in. He beats her with a rubber mallet and slips zip ties around her necks and tightens them. He then drags her body into the kitchen and removes her clothes he tells police that he can't recall if he had sex with her body or not not he stuffs her into a garbage bag and dumps her into a a ravine about two miles from her trailer and then drive home drives home moves her car to a bar parking lot keep in mind that while he's beating and strangling rebecca to death and having sex with her body her three-year-old son is in the next room over you have to be a pretty twisted person to commit this act while having a literal toddler in the next room over. That just shows that you have no remorse for any of the family. But that's just my hot take. So back to the story. Then on the morning of Halloween, he dresses up the son in his Halloween costume and drops him off at the son's dad house and just goes about his day pretending like nothing even happened so to recap what he does he beats her with a mallet he strangles her he then has sex with her body he dumps her body goes back moves her car to throw police off and then he goes back to her child and acts like nothing ever happens dresses the child up and returns the child to his father to the child's father's house and he does this all in the span of a morning So this is a premeditated idea that he has. This is not something that's on the fly. He even admits to the police that he's had fantasies about having sex with Rebecca's dead body. If you remember in his second case, he told the prison psychologist that he had fantasies about having sex with dead bodies. Like this is nothing new. This is not a spur of the moment thing for John. This is something that intrigues him and he wants to do it. And unfortunately it causes people to lose their lives. Whew. Sorry, if it sounds like I'm getting out of breath, I just think as much as this case is interesting to look in and as much as true crime is like interesting to look into it is always really sad to hear about all the people that lose their lives. I mean true crime is a very popular genre of things that people like me like to research you know I watch a lot of documentaries Um, I would love to make documentaries on cold cases in the future but at the core of it I always have to remind myself that it is not about the serial killer or the killer that it is about the victims Um, and it's about bringing justice to the victims, and that's something I just always remind myself every time I look into these cases, but that's just my little spiel. Back to the story. Um, okay, so the police now have the location of Rebecca's body, and they go and recover her and arrest John on murder charges. The autopsy of Rebecca's body shows signs of abrasion that would indicate sexual assault Well, she was still alive or shortly after her death. So remember, John told the police that he doesn't remember having, he doesn't remember if he had sex with the body or not. This is just a tactic that he's telling the police. The police don't believe him, and the evidence shows that he did, in fact, have sex with the body. On November 1st, 2012, the Office of Prosecuting Attorneys released a statement to the media saying, John Douglas White, age 55, was arraigned today in Isabella Court on the charges of first-degree murder and open open murder for allegedly killing Rebecca Gay, age 24. White, a Deerfield Township resident, is alleged to have killed Miss Gay at her home on Coldwater Road in the early morning hours of October 31, 2012. Police investigators recovered the body of Rebecca Gay this morning. Um, the media release also explains that first-degree murder, murder is punishable by life without parole and that open murder is punishable by life. Uh, in March 2013, John White pleads guilty to second-degree murder as a as an offender and is and sentenced to six, uh, 56 to 85 years in prison. Okay, wait. So, Isabella Co- County Chief Circuit judge paul chamberlain states that he saw no reason that a man who had two prior convictions for attacking a woman should ever leave prison and i totally agree with him this man is an offender um he even pleads as an offender as a repeated offender when he takes this when he pleads guilty but with that being said and a shocking term of events john only served serves four months of his sentence before he suffers from self-inflicted asphyxiation and is found dead in his jail cell so he kills himself i do want to make this note and say that there is no evidence that john hurt or had any intention to hurt rebecca's son But it still doesn't mean that John is not an evil person. I think the evidence is clear that John was a twisted person that had horrible fantasies. I just want to make that clear because I know when I was talking about this case with my editors, they had a lot of questions about was the child hurt? And there's no evidence to prove that the child's hurt. But with that being said, I just want to thank everyone who took the opportunity to listen to this. I know this material has been super heavy. Um, It's not been easy for me to get through, but I just want to thank you guys for sticking with me. I hope you guys will return to the next episode of CM Life's Crime Time.